Hello, welcome to 1823 Podcast and the final instalment of our mini-series about life with COVID-19. I'm Stuart Arrowsmith and in this episode we're talking about the politics of the pandemic. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. I urge you, at this moment of national emergency, to stay at home, protect our NHS and save lives. We have the opportunity to do something no other country has achieved, elimination of the virus, but it will continue to need a team of five million behind it. I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute, and is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or, or almost a cleaning? We need to think and reflect really heavily on what we want England at least, but the UK as a whole to look like going forward. And we need to prioritise the health of our country. This is 1823 Podcast. I'm joined for this episode by Dr Sam Cook, a lecturer in international relations and politics at LJMU. Hi Sam. Hi. How are you doing? How have you been keeping through COVID-19? There have, there have been ups and downs. The novelty of uh, working at home wore off pretty quickly, but uh, my partner and I have managed to muddle on through. Good, good. Well, on this episode, I wanted to get your thoughts on the, the political response to the pandemic and the recovery, what it tells us about politics today, and I suppose what the repercussions may be of the decisions that are being taken at the moment. Firstly, I think one of the most striking things about the response to COVID has been the lack of the a global strategy to deal with it. Attitudes and decision-making have really varied from country to country, haven't they? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I, I think we've seen that in kind of the very muddled approach that each country has kind of taken in its own way, some being more muddled than others. Yeah. And you can draw that stark contrast, can't you, with for example, 2008 and the financial crisis, there was such a coordinated response to that. Does that just simply reflect the political times that we're in when these events happen? I think it's that. And also with with the financial crisis, I mean, I'm not a finance expert, but you can see the numbers. You can, you can see, I know, I know money is something that we've created, but you can see the numbers fluctuating. You can see the patterns COVID, you can see it once it's manifested itself. And by that point, it's almost too late. So I think that idea of the invisible threat very much through governments um, and their populations and how they should respond. So you've gone from that kind of that visibility in 2008 of the numbers are plummeting. Um, We need to figure out how to kind of rebuild to we've got this virus that we can't see. You haven't got those physical numbers until it's too late almost. And we don't know how it's going to develop. And alongside that, in 2008, we were quite a, a globalist world at the time, whereas here we are in 2020, it's much more populist, it's much more nationalist. Is that is that informing the decision-making that we're going through at the moment? I think there is definitely resistance within the UK, because, I mean, 2020 has thrown so much at us, I almost forgot that we left the EU at the beginning of the year. Yeah. So yeah. I think the the marking in the beginning of that transition period and the kind of the rhetoric within the UK or England especially since the referendum you're seeing that divide more and that reluctance to engage um, initially in these open conversations that we might well have had had something like this happened back in 2008 and if you look at the financial crisis like you said there's more cohesiveness between the states 
because although there is some kind of resistance against the idea of this idea of unity in European identity, we haven't yet had that full-blown discussion about it, and it hasn't been embedded into the national rhetoric. If we can talk about leaders for a moment, we heard a clip at the top there of um, of some of the world leaders and the way that they've handled this situation. Someone who's received a lot of praise for her leadership, and we heard that clip at the top, is Jacinda Ardern from New Zealand. She recently talked about the importance of having humility in dealing with this situation and not pretending to have all of the answers. Could I diplomatically suggest that that hasn't been the case with all leaders in this situation? I think Jacinda has done a fantastic job in the way she's responded. I mean, I'm not going to say that it was the perfect response, but New Zealand is well ahead of the game with regard to style, approach, respect of the population as well, I think. Um, Definitely some the characteristics I would not attribute to UK or US responses, for example. And it is that idea that you're trusting people with all the information and you're saying to them, we don't necessarily have all of the answers because this is a situation we've not been through before. And people do respond to that, I think, don't they? They will accept that a government won't know everything, certainly at the start of a situation like this. Definitely. And I I think, like you said, with with the case of New Zealand, uh, Jacinda was very forthright in the fact that she said, look, I'm, I'm not an expert in this. I'm going to listen to the experts and I'm going to use my judgment. But she also humanized herself in a way. Um, I mean, I believe, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that um, New Zealand politicians uh, received a cut to their pay um, as a symbolic gesture, basically, to those who were enduring financial hardships during lockdown there. We've not seen anything like that here. I mean, the magic money tree appeared to have been found as soon as Javed stepped down from his position um, in the UK, but we've not seen any kind of gesture or sacrifice, um, no matter how big or small, really, from um, kind of UK, US governments who claim to still be leaders in world politics. Well, just to pick up that point about the situation here in the UK, it, it's going to be fascinating, isn't it, to see what the long-term effects of the current decision-making will be, because we have, we've have we got massive state intervention by a governing party that doesn't traditionally believe in doing that, led by someone who's invoking FDR and the New Deal. And then we've got an opposition, a main opposition party, who would ordinarily call for that level of investment and intervention in normal times. So Does this become the new normal now as we go forward? If the Conservative government ends at the next general election, then I think, yes, I think this will become the new normal. I'm not saying that Labour will get in. It's going to be interesting to see how campaigns go, Um, assuming that it's, you know, in what, 2023, 24, that we're meant to have the next election. Um, If we maintain a Conservative government, this this is a temporary situation. Um, There's already uh, backlash at the prospect of reinstating parking charges for NHS workers um, who have been on the front line. Even before the pandemic, they're putting their lives at risk, not knowing what's going on. Emergency responders are receiving abuse on a daily basis. I mean, there's a case here earlier in the week in the West Midlands, I think it was in Wolverhampton, where two paramedics were stabbed upon entry into a building and were in life threatening situations. They do that on a daily basis, irrespective of whether there's a pandemic. And I think 
what the current government and what future governments going forward need to think about is how do we firstly pay it forward to those who have put themselves at risk and those who have lost their lives by being on the front line but also how do we put it and make it in a society where we we respect these people we we give them the recognition they deserve they are for one of a better word, like heroes i know they don't do it for hero status but they are the people who respond when we need help who give us the treatment and yet they have some of uh, the lower levels of recognition within society so if we keep the conservatives in i think this is temporary if we get a party such as labor but not necessarily them um in afterwards i think we will see change but again it's going to have to be gradual that was something we talked about with colin jones in an earlier episode whether this can be politically a moment that changes how we value our key workers in the country and by value and i guess that means more money better conditions and so on will the party of the day be willing to do that yeah, I think that that's a very important thing going forward. And I think it's definitely something that needs to come to the forefront of political debates, even before a general election campaign starts up. Um, it's it's something that convinced a lot of people to vote for us to leave the EU in the first place, is the promise that so much money would be invested into the NHS and the public health sector. And obviously that's not happened. And the cost of Brexit so far, I believe, has now exceeded... Um, what our membership cost over the uh, membership period. And what we need is a strategy to figure out how we can reinvest in ourselves, in our own country, and ensure that everybody has access to healthcare they need, that people working in the healthcare industry actually can afford to live and not worry about making ends meet. Um, and finding a way where people are, <laughs> in an ideal world, not overworked and underpaid, Obviously, in kind of the medical sector, it's very different with the expectations, but we need to think and reflect really heavily on what we want England, at least, but the UK as a whole to look like going forward and how we we want to present ourselves to kind of internally, but also how we want to be viewed externally. And we need to prioritise the health of our country not just financially, but also medically and other kind of areas, um, before anything else. You're listening to 1823 Podcast. If we look across at what's happening in the, in the United States, an added factor over there is the fact that we're a few months out from a scheduled presidential election. How far do you think that is shaping the political decision-making over there? And what is the cost of that going to be? The cost of that is going to be many, many, many more thousands of American lives, unfortunately, I think. Donald Trump has not been presidential. Um, The underlying racist, well, not necessarily underlying, the racist uh, labelling of COVID as China flu and China plague going forward shows little respect for, personally, the people of China. That negative connotation that comes through with it, which is not new when kind of looking at maybe from more kind of an orientalist kind of perspective, putting that other, that enemy other out there. And that is not to say that China is the enemy other. It's just the rhetoric that is coming through. Internally, he he, he has shown no leadership, no, no respect for American lives. The idea that COVID will just disappear is absolutely preposterous. And 
he has used his statements to the press almost as campaign material rather than providing guidance. Uh, I mean, we've also seen in the US uh, other issues with regard to police brutality. And again, he has not shown any leadership. He has been antagonistic. He has shown no respect for the people involved. And honestly, as we go into this presidential election, I don't see anything concrete coming out other than a very divided state again. Um, and I don't know if you've seen recently, uh, Kanye West has decided that he's going to be president this year. Um, yes. His name is not appearing on some ballots in swing states, so I'm not 100% sure if he's registered properly for this. But there is concern that he's doing it to enable Trump to win the next election by splitting the black vote within the Democratic Party um, and at least lessening the number of votes received by Biden. So there's also that going on as well. Um, so I guess with one thing that I would say with regard to the US and the UK is that the blustering buffoon-like behavior of both apparent leaders is potentially being used to cover up and distract people from everything else that is going on, whether it be potentially asking China for help in winning the next election or pushing through poor food standards as we're leaving the EU. It's not in the interest of the people. It's not necessarily because the, the leaders themselves don't have those answers. I don't think it is. I, th I think it's part of a poor strategy that they're trying to push through. And especially if we come back to the UK right now with the care home situation, it's about testing the public and seeing how far they can push them and then what else they can get away with. Just staying with America for a moment, do you think the response to COVID-19 is enough to sway the outcome of the election? Or do you think that Trump's base is secure enough that he can still retain the White House in November? Uh, even before COVID, like, but I think he's going to win. And it's not even because people necessarily support Trump and policies that are being put forward. It's because of the rhetoric that's been put forward about this idea of freedom and the restriction on their rights. So this idea that, you know, wearing a face mask to help prevent the spread of COVID is taking away their, their civil liberties. It's impinging on their everyday freedoms. They want haircuts. They want to go get their nails done. They want to, you know, they want to go to work, which in, that that's fair enough. I mean, we all want to go to work as well. Um, so I, I think it's, again, the way the language has been used and the divides already within American politics, you're going to see more of a sway towards Trump purely because he knows how to make it appear as though he is putting the American interests first, even though actually it's being far more restrictive and far, far more dangerous than other approaches. And just to touch on the issue you mentioned about those inflammatory marks about China, that's such a complex relationship already between the United States and China. Will this have long-term ramifications, do you think? Honestly, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, the, like you said, the relationship between the US and China is already complex. China's brought out, brought out a huge amount of US debt. I think if Trump wins the next election more damage will be done. 
and then I think we'll have long-term ramifications. I think if he loses enough of his support base for Biden to win, then there's less chance. It'll be more kind of maybe medium to short-term damages. But then the issue is, if Trump doesn't win, he still has the potential to come back for another four years later on down the track. Yeah. Well, in more general terms, it'd be interesting to see what the electoral consequences of the crisis are. Because leaders benefit, don't they, from that initial rally round the flag attitude from people when you have a crisis like this. But, you know, people like Gordon Brown and even Winston Churchill found that that doesn't necessarily mean that voters are going to put you back in at the next election. Yeah. So it'll depend, again, how determined people are to have their voices heard and whether when it comes to the ballot box, because for a lot of people not voting for a specific party, like they can't manage to do it because they voted a certain way their whole lives. It'll be interesting to see how many people feel that they are brave enough to break that tradition and vote for a change that they think is necessary, even if it's for a different party. Um, In the UK, I think if we end up with an election before the next one is scheduled, there's just voter fatigue here. We, we've had so many blooming elections in like the last couple of years. I mean, what, 2020 should have been the year for the first general election since David Cameron came in. And we've had, yeah. what, at least we've had two, two since then. Yeah, 15, 17, 19. 19. Yeah. yeah. Um, and... With the referendum as well and changes in party leadership as well. So it's not just about the general election, it's about, you know, party membership as well and having to make that choice and constantly being kind of bombarded with this campaign material um, and so forth. I mean, we're about to have our second leadership election of the year. We've already had Labour, we've got the Lib Dems coming up over the summer. Um, so it's all the different levels as well. And there's just, there is voter fatigue. Yeah. And just finally, what about on a on a really local level? Because it's at times like this when it's the more sort of unheralded political figures along with community volunteers who who really help our society and help our community cope with situations like this. Yeah, so um, I don't live in Liverpool. I live in a little town called Kenilworth, which is on the Warwickshire-Coventry border. And um, I think a huge shout-out deserves to go to the Kenilworth COVID-19 support group who basically developed as the result of um, the panic buying of toilet paper and all the initial things right at the beginning. Um, One of the local businesses was so disgusted at people's selfishness and the fact that um, people weren't able to get hold of um, kind of basic necessities, um, especially people who were living kind of on a week by week basis um, and couldn't bulk buy. So what he did was he set up a box outside his his shop um, for donations. It could be tin food, sanitary products, hand sanitizer at the time. Um, And he sellotaped an umbrella to it to stop the rain getting in. Between him and a couple of his friends, they set up with the local community center um, this COVID response team. And it's just received charity status. Um, And I've not been involved right at the kind of the organizational level, but I've been what we've called a street champion for three of the local streets, which means that um, if anybody in those streets needs any assistance, whether it's um, getting prescriptions delivered, 
Um, then I'd fill out a form for the, the appropriately named Farmy Army to deliver. Um, I would help them to have, so I might be able to go pick up shopping, things like that if it had been ordered and deliver it, obviously social distancing, um, ensuring that everything was handled appropriately with gloves and masks. Um, a lot of fundraising has been done. And this little town has really, really come together. And I'm so proud to be part of this community. And it's it's really been interesting to see how it's brought people together. You know, people have started talking to their neighbours more. I'm sure this has happened kind of across the country as well. But people have started, like, you know who your neighbours are now. People are generally more receptive to this. People have kind of started checking in on people who, even before the pandemic, were vulnerable. Um, and I think that this is definitely something that we need to maintain moving forward as well. Now that we've got this infrastructure in place, make sure that those people who are vulnerable when there isn't a global pandemic still have this support network and keep it in place should there be any future issues, whether it's hopefully not another global pandemic or floods or anything like that. Um, so I know here at the local level, response has been phenomenal. It sounds a great initiative. And as you say, I think that's been replicated, isn't it, around the country with communities coming together, which is one of the positives we can take from the whole crisis we're living through. Definitely. Sam, thanks for your time and chatting to us on that. That's really interesting. And I uh, hope you stay safe and well. Thank you for having me. Thanks to Sam. And thanks to all of our guests who've joined us for this series of episodes about living in a world with COVID-19. If you've enjoyed the series, make sure you subscribe for future episodes. And why not leave us a nice review and rating wherever you get your podcasts from? <laughs>